Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. Thanks for tuning in. It's so good to have you with us. We're in the midst of a series right now called Telos, T-E-L-O-S. And uh, that word is a Greek word that means uh, goal or end. Yeah, come in the bowl. Don't just run out to me. I love it. And swap. There we are. Okay, that's so much better. I love this mic. It's weightier. It feels nicer in my hand. It's awesome. Okay, so uh, telos is a Greek word that means end. It means goal. It's where we get our word uh, teleology or teleological, which uh, connects to us looking at um, evidence evidences in nature to point to their purpose. What are they made for? Um, and obviously, uh, in, in a theological reality, uh, our telos is that we would be found in Christ. That's the ultimate reality, that we would all be found in Christ Jesus and redeemed in Christ. And the reason we called this series Telos is because we're going through the book of 1 Thessalonians, which is a letter written by a man named Paul. Paul was an apostle. The word apostle means sent one. He was sent by Jesus to preach the gospel to people throughout the Roman Empire and he would write letters to these churches that he would form in these different Roman cities. And this letter is called First Thessalonians. And this series is called Telos because multiple times throughout this letter, Paul makes reference to the end. He makes reference to the goal, which is that we would be found in Christ Jesus at the return of Christ. Now, in two weeks' time, we're going to take a deep dive into the return of Jesus. So I'm so pumped about that message. It's going to be awesome. So make sure you mark that in your calendar. You don't want to miss that Sunday. We're going to be looking at that. But today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, picking it up in verse 11, we're going to read through to chapter 4 and verse 8. The Apostle Paul says this, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That's a reference right there to the return of Christ. Finally then, brothers, beginning in chapter 4, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Everybody say more and more. Okay, that was pretty pathetic. Say more and more. Ah, there was every voice. I love it. Okay, so don't go to sleep on me like we can be engaged as a church. That's all right. Okay. Yeah, good. Okay. So, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. This is like a huge sentence right here. Anybody ever wondered what God's will was for their life? No? Okay, only me. Okay, great. Um, So, if you have been wondering, this is it right here. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Boom. Question answered right there. I love it. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So today we're going to talk about the subject of holiness. Just think about it. When's the last time you were in a church and you heard a sermon on holiness? We could all use a little growing in our understanding of holiness. I think today is going to be really powerful, um, hopefully not too cringy for you. We'll talk a little bit 
about a biblical sex ethic as the Apostle Paul connects the subject of holiness to our sexuality and uh, praying that that's illuminating and impactful for every single one of us. The title of today's message, why don't you write it down if you're taking notes. If you're not taking notes, write it down. It's called Surprised by Holiness. Surprised by Holiness. And here's an opening question for us to ponder. Um, Have you ever been given a gift or have you ever been through an experience that you did not expect to enjoy or like only to find that it surprised you? And actually you, you took quite a bit of delight in that gift or you took quite a bit of enjoyment from that experience. I have these kinds of moments in simple ways all of the time. Like, um, here was probably one for me as, as a young adult. Sushi was this for me. Like, I would say most people don't go into their first sushi experience thinking, I'm going to love this. Everything about raw fish sounds incredible. It, it doesn't really to us. But the first time I tried sushi, lo and behold, loved sushi. Any sushi fans here? Anybody like, anybody, anyone here hates sushi like you absolutely despise? Yeah, so there's a few sane people here. That's totally great. Um, here was a, another recent one for me was, uh, was going to uh, the state of Michigan, never been to Michigan before, and having a lake vacation. That was just one of those things to me that just never sounded like completely exciting. I don't know why. Like I'm born in Australia, so to me beach vacations, they sound incredible. Um, But my mom, she got remarried a few years ago and the, the man that she married has been vacationing at the same lake in Michigan for, I don't know, like 40 years. He was, he's been going to the same place. And so this is like a non-negotiable, okay? We're all coming together. It's a blended family, and we're going to meet up with mom for part of our summer vacation, and so we're going to Michigan. And I just totally expected it to be completely underwhelming and average. Mom, if you're watching online, Mr. Steve, love you. God bless you. And surprise and delight, I had an amazing time. Love the Michigan lakes. They're incredible. And uh, except for this one, I don't know if you've heard of this thing called swimmer's itch. Anybody ever got swimmer's itch? Like there's like bacteria in the lakes and like they can crawl into your skin. They cause you to get exceptionally itchy. Yeah, that happened to my seven-year-old and that was three hours of absolute hell. Um, was t- I also flipped a jet ski with us on it. So <laughs> there was that. But all things considered, it was an, an absolutely enjoyable, I didn't expect to enjoy it, but it actually turned out to be something that we really loved and something that we actually look forward to now when summer rolls around. One more example would be um, when our son, Winston, he's seven now, um, but when he was, I think, about three, one Christmas, we got him a scooter for Christmas as, like, his main present, and uh, we're in Atlanta, we're visiting family, and we go through all the presents, and it's meant to be the whole thing where, like, they unwrap every single present, but then, like, the scooter was the big reveal, so I, like, wheel the scooter from around the corner, I'm expecting, like, my three-year-old son to light up, like, to be so pumped, not to mention he'd been asking for a scooter in the weeks leading up to Christmas. Like, this is what he wanted. So I wheel the scooter from around the corner, and he just looks at it and walks away. (laughs) He wasn't excited at all. I try to get Winston onto the scooter, and he is resisting the scooter. He wants nothing to do with the scooter. But, of course, we leave it there for a couple of hours, and, like, you know, time goes by, and he eventually makes his way up to the scooter, and then Winston gets on the scooter, and he's trying to, like, scoot around the house. And then before you know it, he's absolutely in love with this gift. So the gift that he was acting like was his least favorite gift actually became his most favorite gift. And I would say that if we could think properly about holiness, it would be something where maybe at first thought, we think, not too exciting. 
like, I'm a Christian now, and I love Jesus, and most of us don't step into our Christian faith thinking, man, can't wait to dive into holiness. Holiness is going to be the best thing ever about Christianity. Like, not a lot of people think that way, but I want to encourage us today to think differently about holiness and see that actually, even though it might seem at first thought to be not such a great gift, it's actually one of the greatest gifts that God gives you in your walk of following Jesus. Holiness will surprise you. And in order to understand holiness, we kind of have to go back to the beginning and consider the fact that in the beginning, God had a plan. And when I say that God had a plan, that's not to say that God no longer has a plan or that the, the, the course of events throughout human history were not factored into God's plan and they, they threw him off. It's not to say that at all. It's just to say that in the beginning, God had a good plan and God had good intentions for how his creation could experience a good life. And if we could sum up that plan in one word, I think a great word to sum up God's original plan for humanity would be the word holiness. Holiness is a great description of God's intention for humanity. You think about what God's original intention involved. No matter how you interpret the early chapters of the book of Genesis, we can gather that God makes man in his image and he creates this garden reality, this Edenic reality, and places mankind into that reality. And mankind is commissioned by God to take Eden and to spread it throughout the rest of the world, to be fruitful and multiply, to take this beautiful creation and make the rest of the world partner with God in continuing what God had already begun to do. That's the Edenic mandate. That's what biblical scholars call it. And of course, we all know the story that we fall short of that mandate that God had given us. But had we fulfilled that mandate, we would have lived a life in perfect holiness. Holiness is to bear the image of God. It's to walk in the character of God. And that's why in the Bible, oftentimes it it invites us into holiness and the doorway of that invitation is being like God. In Leviticus chapter 19, verses one and two, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Jesus picks up on this same command and in Matthew 5, 48, he, he, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he says to them, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He's inviting us to be like God. First Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So there's no doubt then that at a real basic level, holiness is you and I choosing to embark on a journey of becoming more like the Lord. Which is why another New Testament word that gets used for holiness is godliness. It's being like God, and that is part of you and I's call in life. And had we never strayed from God's call on our lives, then we would have lived lives in perfect holiness the entire time. Living according to God's original intent and God's original design. I think sometimes we have to take words like holiness and, and words like that in the Bible and kind of just demystify them a little bit and debunk them because we can have all these kinds of ideas about what it means to be a holy person. The primary Old Testament word for holiness just means to cut. It means to be cut off 
from that which is impure and to be set apart to that which is pure. That's it. That's what holiness means. Just separated from that and consecrated to that. And that is the calling that you and I have. And oftentimes what happens is we over-spiritualize ideas like holiness and we make them completely out of reach for us. And so we, we condemn ourselves before we even begin. And we get down on ourselves before we even strive to live the life that God has called us to. But, but actually, holiness in the Bible is quite simple. Like, let's just consider a couple of examples, right? So let's take the idea of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day of rest for the Israelite people. It was the seventh day of the week. And God said to the, to the children of Israel, he said, this day is holy. Now, was there anything remarkable about Saturday? Was there anything special? Like when the Israelites woke up on Saturday, was there like magical anointing in the air? Was there like a special weight of glory that they felt as the people of Israel? No, absolutely not. It was just an ordinary day. But because God said, I want you to consecrate it to me, an ordinary thing became holy. What about ground? You remember the story, Moses in the burning bush? And what does God say to Moses? Take off your sandals for you are standing on Holy ground. Was there anything exceptional about that ground? No, ordinary ground, and yet God calls it holy. What about an altar? What's an altar? It's a pile of rocks where they would offer things to the Lord. Was there anything sacred about those rocks? No, 30 seconds prior to them gathering those rocks up and piling them up into an altar, they were just scattered rocks along the ground. They were ordinary rocks, and yet when they put them together and consecrated, dedicated that place to God, those rocks became holy. And guess what? When it comes to people, it is the exact same idea. Holiness is simply that we are ordinary people who are dedicated to an extraordinary God. And it's not so much a process. Like I think sometimes we like to kind of, you know, let ourselves off the hook a little bit when it comes to holiness. And we like to think about holiness as a journey. Like where I start out a little bit holy and like in 10 years, I expect to be, you know, 20% more holy. But in between this 10th year and year one, I got, you know, I have some leeway to be a little less holy along the way. But holiness is not really a journey. Holiness is a decision. It's a choice to be dedicated to cut yourself off from this to be consecrated unto God. Holiness is a series of choices to be dedicated to the Lord. Let's make it really simple. This is holiness. Holiness is right living. And right living is living for God. That's a great definition. You should write that down. Holiness is right living. And right living is living for God. After we sinned, God did not need a plan B called holiness. In other words, holiness is not a system upgrade. It's not an upgrade in your operating system. You know what holiness is? It's a factory reset. It's getting back to God's design. Not trying to figure out something new because we mucked up in the first place. And when we think about it as something kind of external to us and beyond us, that's when we start to think that holiness is impossible. Listen to me. Is God asking you to live holy? Okay, three people. Let me try again. I'll Listen to me, is God asking you to live holy? Yeah. yeah. So would he be asking you to do it if you couldn't? 
No, he wouldn't. So we can't think about it as some impossible ideal to be achieved out there. When we think about holiness like that, that's when we get confused and we think holiness is oppressive. Or we think that holiness is, is um, some, some carrot on a stick that we actually can't grab. But that's not what holiness is at all. Holiness is actually surprisingly delightful and fulfilling because it's living life the way that we were created to live. You ever try to take an object and use it in a way that is different than the way that it was created to be used? Like, you ever not had a hammer, so you tried to use a screwdriver to hammer the nail? It's frustrating, right? Yeah, because it's not what it was made for. But if you use the screwdriver as a screwdriver and use a hammer as a hammer, guess what? It's a, it's a joyful experience because you're using it the way that it was designed to be used. That's what holiness is is all about. And if you think about it as some external thing that God has some ridiculous expectation upon you, then you're always going to fall short and you're always going to feel condemned. But when you get the revelation, that actually this is the way God designed me to live, then holiness will be a source of joy for your life. So if all of that is true, is it any wonder that when the Apostle Paul gets to the segment of his letter where he really wants to encourage the Thessalonians in particular types of behavior, that the first behavior on the list is living holy. He spent the first few chapters encouraging them and exhorting them, and I'm so proud of you. We're praying for you. You're doing great. You're still following Jesus. Explaining to them why he had to bail on them in the middle of the night because there was intense persecution. Hasn't been able to get back to them, but he's checking in on them. So he's encouraging them, and then he's going to come around to this pastoral section of the letter. And the first thing he wants to pastor them in is, hey, I really want to make sure that you're committed to holiness. And so that's a really good thing. When your pastor sits down with you and they ask you like prying questions, it's not because they're nosy. It's because they want to encourage you in holiness. When your neighborhood group leader calls you during the week and they're asking you about your life and they actually want to know how are things going, what are the choices that you're making, it's not because they're nosy, it's because they want to encourage you in holiness. And that's the role of the church is to spur one another on into a life of holiness. And Paul uses multiple phrases in that short passage that we read to basically say the same thing over and over and over again. It's really important that you commit to being holy. And holiness is right living. And right living is living for God. John Stott was a a British theologian and uh, his commentary on the uh, letter of 1 Thessalonians is great. I saw this quote this week. He said this, Within a few weeks or months, Paul had taught the young Thessalonian converts not only the essence of the good news, but also the essence of the good life. And the essence of that good life is holiness. Because holiness is right living. And when you live rightly, you'll be living for God. And guess what? When you live for God, your life will be good. It doesn't mean that your life will be easy. But it does mean that your life will be good. Because you'll be living for God. Now that will involve sacrifice. It might involve enduring suffering. God knows that our brothers and sisters in various parts of the world suffer for the name of Jesus. But they're still following Jesus. Because it's a, a much better life than they had had they not been following Jesus. Because they're walking with the one who's the Lord, who's the king, who's sovereign over all the earth, who fills their heart 
with peace and joy that goes beyond understanding and that doesn't necessarily always line up with their circumstance. Now, if you want your emotions to line up with your circumstance and then you think that that's the ultimate way to live, what's gonna happen is you're gonna live your life always trying to control your circumstance. Because your circumstance greatly affects the way that you feel. Now, you've probably lived a little while, just by a show of hands, who is 100% successful in always controlling their circumstance? Great, how's it going? It's not going well, right? So what's going on in the inner life? Not going well. But when you commit to Jesus and you commit to holiness, that means you just commit to right living. So that no matter what goes on in my circumstance, I'm gonna make the right choice. I'm gonna make the choice that, that honors God. Honor is what stems from holiness because you care about your life being dedicated to the Lord no matter what's going on in your circumstance. And when you do that, you can live with the outcomes. The longer I follow Jesus, the better I get with living with outcomes and the less concerned I get with trying to control. And that is a good life. And that's what holiness leads to. So here's a good question. That was all, what is holiness? What's the follow-up question? How do we be holy? We should probably answer that question. If holiness is so important, so central to the Christian life. Here's a really easy answer. You could write this down. How do I be holy? You ready? It's a real brain buster. Um, believe in Jesus. You want to be holy? Believe in Jesus. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says, but you are a chosen race. He's talking about the church all around the world. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that phrase, holy nation, is talking about the church. The church, the people of God, are a holy nation. God does not have one special nation in the world. He has the church. The church is his nation. The church is holy simply because it's connected to Jesus. When you said, I want to follow Jesus, and I want Jesus to be the Lord and master of my life, in that instant, you became holy. And you joined a holy nation. So you should take courage today in the fact that simply by being connected to Christ, you have become holy. And that's why all throughout the New Testament, guess what Christians are called? They're called saints. Yeah, in neighborhood group this week, you show up and be like, what's up, saints? Just call, start calling people saints all the time. You know what saints means? It means holy ones. All throughout the New Testament, Christians are called holy ones, no matter what was going on in their lives. Like a great example of this is the church in Corinth. You guys remember we talked in the beginning of the year all about the church in Corinth. We had Nathan Finocchio with us a few weeks back. He talked about the church in Corinth. I think his wording was dumpster fire. Pretty sure that's what he called the church in Corinth, a dumpster fire. It was better when they were apart than it was when they were together. Like that's how poor things were going in Corinth. One guy sleeping with his stepmom. So there's that. So if you're feeling kind of condemned this morning, you're doing a-okay, okay? Unless you're sleeping with your stepmom, in which case, let's talk after the service is over. Over, okay, the rich people are showing up to the Lord's Supper. They're eating all of the food and leaving the poor people out. This is what's going on in the church in Corinth. And this is why Paul has to write a corrective letter to them called 1 Corinthians, which he begins in verse 2 with this. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Because when you are connected to Christ... Even while you're still figuring stuff out, you're holy. And man, is that a powerful thing. So that when you 
When you make a mistake this week and you feel condemned, it's not that you need a system upgrade. You don't need to reach for something that's beyond you. You just need to get back into alignment with what's already true. That you are holy in Christ Jesus. And then here's what maturity looks like. Maturity looks like understanding that holiness isn't just a label. It's also a lifestyle. And if the lifestyle doesn't match up with the label, then the label is, it's like a knockoff. But the authentic label is authenticated by the fact that the lifestyle of holiness stems from the label of holiness. John the Baptist called, um, called this bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. You know what repentance means? Repentance means that you're turning away from that thing and you're changing direction, you're going this way. Okay, so that sounds a lot like holiness, where I'm cutting off from that, and I'm consecrating myself to him. And when you do that, you will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What did Jesus say in John 15, 5? Apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Connect to me, and you will bear fruit. If you disconnect from me, then you won't bear any fruit. So Jesus says, you can bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You can bear the fruit of a holy life if you believe in him, if you connect to him and stay connected to him. But apart from him, we can do nothing. And this is why God is justified in saying, hey, family, I want you to be holy as I am holy because he has made a way for you to be holy. The idea that you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you is not just like something described in words on a page. That is a, a Christian reality. So that you actually have the Holy Spirit. Now we like to talk about all different kinds of things that the Holy Spirit does in our life. You know what the primary thing, the Holy Spirit? Yeah, it's in his name. He helps you to be holy. To say no to that and to keep saying yes to God. I have 10 minutes and a lot left. I'm on page four and I've got 11 pages. <laughs> this is good though. This is helping us. This is the kind of life that God calls us to. Um, Let's just do this really quick. Let's, let's break down what does belief look like? It's two things. It's love and it's loyalty. In fact, Paul grounds the call to be holy first in love. If you look back at uh, verse th uh, chapter 3 and verses 12 and 13, in his benediction, he says this. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God, our God and Father. So I want you to abound in love. Why? So that you'll be holy. So that love piece is what it looks like to believe in Christ. It's not just intellectual assent, it's relationship. Right here, Paul connects that to loving one another. And whenever you see this language in the, church, in, in the scripture, you've got to understand. So he says, love one another and all. What's Paul talking about? He says, first, I want you to love the church. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's your, your first priority. Love God, love the church. And then he says, and all. What's that? People outside the church. So we do good to all as we have opportunity. That's what the scriptures say in Galatians chapter 6. But so we're to love one another and all people. And I would just say, if we were to really expound upon that, first we ought to love God, right? That's the greatest commandment. Jesus says, love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and body. 
And so we, we need to love God. That's actually a relationship. It's not just intellectual assent. We love the church. We love all. And I would also say that you love yourself. Because Jesus said that you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, so if you don't know how to love yourself rightly, you won't be very good at loving one another rightly. And actually, this is the Bible's invitation into holiness when it comes to your sex ethic, by the, by the way. The biblical sex ethic is based upon you valuing your body. People often think that Christianity bases its sex ethic on the idea that the body is degraded or that the body is unimportant, but that's not the scriptural argument at all. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, the apostle Paul says this, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? That right there, that screams valuable. Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. That screams valuable. So glorify God in your body. So Paul is literally grounding his invitation into sexual purity in the value of the human body. That has nothing to do with degrading the body. It has nothing to do with making the body unimportant. It's actually recognizing that my body one day will be resurrected physically at the return of Christ. So God obviously places great value on my body. Why would I not place great value on my body? Absolutely, I should. And one of the primary ways that I do that is by honoring God with my sexuality. It's a super important thing. So, so that, that's the, the loving piece. And then the other piece is loyalty. And you gotta get this, this is just as important. And I know we love the love piece, but you gotta get the loyalty piece. Because belief in Jesus is not just the emotion of love, it's the obedience of faith. It is loyalty unto him who is the king. And I don't have time to read the scripture, but we read it earlier. Paul says the reason people, uh, Gentiles, which is a, a New Testament phrase for basically non-believers, the reason they don't honor God with their sexuality is why? Because they don't know God. That word know means to honor and respect. They're not loyal to King Jesus. So we should not expect them to behave in a Jesus-like way because they're not loyal to the Lord. But if you and I are gonna claim to believe in Jesus, that means we don't just love him, we're loyal to him. And if we're loyal to him, then that means we have to behave in a way, conduct ourselves in a way that, that communicates our loyalty is to the Lord. And this we should give him. Because everything that God asks of us is directly connected to what he wants for us, not from us. So God's not in heaven looking down at you like trying to stay sexually pure and getting a kick out of it. He's not watching you and you're struggling. <laughs> no, no, God calls you to holiness because he calls you into a good life. Because holiness is right living and right living is living for God. And living for God will bring you into a beautiful life. Let me just summarize this really quick. Um, aim for Jesus. Just write that down, big in your notes. Aim for Jesus. If you aim straight for holiness, you're going to wind up in one of two places. You're going to wind up in religious legalism or secular humanism. And they are both demonic distortions of a kingdom reality. So you'll either do the religious version of legalism or you'll do the secular version of legalism, but you won't land in holiness. You'll land in unhappiness and self-condemnation. But if you aim for Jesus, guess what you'll get? You'll get holiness. Because he makes you holy in an instant. So all of a sudden it's a change of identity. And now I can live from a place that is true 
rather than trying to strive for a place that is beyond me. Is this helping anybody today? This is good. Yeah, come on. Give God great big praise. It's good. Team, you guys can come. I made it to page six, so there's, there's that. <laughs> this is awesome. Um, can I share a few more things? Let me just go on a little bit more about the sex thing. That was a funny way to say it. Um, all sex is done with devotion to someone or something. All sexual activity is done with devotion to someone or something. Let me say it this way. All sex is religious. So like if you study the, the ancient Roman cultures and how they viewed a lot of their sexual activity, a lot of it was connected to religious devotion. And that was absolutely true in Corinth, but it was also true in Thessalonica. And that's why Paul is encouraging them in their sexual purity, because he knows that they've, they've been saved out of paganism. And part of their pagan faith was practicing certain religious rites, religious ceremonies that involved um, unholy sexual behavior. And sometimes we can hear that and go, well, that's a lot different than our culture. But I just want to let you know today, it's not at all different from our culture. All sex is religious. Their religion was paganism, and our culture's sex is religious. It's just different religion. And there's probably a few different religions that it's connected to, just two, like one would be expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is, is uh, my authentic self is God. And my sexuality is an expression of my authentic self. That's why if uh, you ever question somebody on their sexual choices, you're not questioning their behavior, they take it as you questioning their identity. Because we live in a culture, and this has taken hundreds of years to arrive at this point. Great book I recommend to you, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Carl Truman, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Read that book, it'll blow your mind. About how we arrived to where we arrived in our place and culture. And sexuality is an expression of the authentic self. So that's, that's one religion where the self is God. The other religion is just materialism. There is no God, which means my body is nothing more than meat. It's just clay that I can mold however I want. I can do with my body what I want. It's just a machine. But if you and I are genuinely going to believe that there is a mind at work behind the existence of everything that we can see and touch and listen to and sense, and that we believe that mind is a personal God, not some watchmaker God who just wound the thing up and spun it into motion and then stepped back to watch the whole thing play out. Not that kind of God. The kind of God who took dirt from the ground and breathed into it. His very spirit, his very breath, his very life. So that you and I could walk as his image in the earth, carrying on his plan, his intent, his design. Then we have no place in our thinking to go that, well, I'm gonna consecrate everything, but I'm not gonna consecrate my sexuality. We have no room for that. Otherwise, we operate with a certain degree of cognitive dissonance, where what we believe doesn't actually line up with how we behave. And that will lead you to burnout. And the reason people do that is because they think holiness is out of reach. 
They think the ideal is what's going to burn them out. But really, it's running from the ideal. And so they don't last very long. That's why Satan never stops at trying to inv invalidate Christian behavior. He always, always will take it to Christian belief. So, like in the world of progressivism, and when I say progressivism, I don't want you to think like I'm a Democrat. I want you to think progressivism in the sense of it's like a religion. And deconstruction stems from this. It never stops at invalidating a Christian's behavior. I've never watched somebody go down that rabbit hole and not arrive at trying to deconstruct the resurrection. And as soon as you can convince yourself that he didn't get up, then all the behavior becomes nonsense. And then you are one step away from secular humanism. This is why it's so important. This is why I care so much about doctrine in this church, because I need to help you believe rightly according to the truth. And if you can believe rightly, then you will behave in a way that is in line with God's design for your life. You'll live holy and holiness is right living and right living is living for God. And living for God will always bring you into a good life. If you received the word this morning, why don't you give God a great big praise? You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.